Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, Episode 32C, FDR, Traitor to His Class, an interview with H.W. Brands. I'm excited to welcome H.W. Brands to the show today. H.W. is the Jack S. Blanton Senior Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin. You may recognize his voice from numerous documentaries, including The Roosevelt's by Ken Burns. He is also the author of some 30-plus books, holy smokes, including Traitor to His Class, The Privileged Life, and Radical Presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a Pulitzer Prize finalist. And this is where we're going to focus our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me, H.W. Happy to be with you, Kenny. The first question I have to ask is, I myself am a former journalist, and I think I write fast, but you've written 30 books in 30 plus years, and every one of them that I've picked up has been an excellent read. How are you so productive? Ah, the secret of my success is that I'm a history teacher. Ah. And I've been teaching history for longer than I've been writing history. And I make a point, I insist on teaching introductory courses. Mm. So every year I have to cover the whole waterfront of American history from the colonial period to the present. And so when I'm deciding on what my next topic is going to be, I have already over the previous years been trying to explain it to myself and explain it to my students. When I decided to write about Franklin Roosevelt, I knew 85% of the Roosevelt story I was going to tell in my book. I, I simply had been learning about, talking about, teaching about Franklin Roosevelt for years. When I decided to focus in and write a book on Roosevelt, then I had to decide, okay, what areas of his life do I focus on? In particular for me in the way I write books, I, I try to immerse my readers in the times. I like to yeah. use the voices of the characters, in this case, Franklin Roosevelt, but also people around him, Eleanor Roosevelt, people who worked with Roosevelt, people who were his political opponents. I try to find their voices. So that's what I go on the lookout for. But I've also been making books long enough to know that there's a lot of dead time for the writer between when I finished a manuscript, then it goes off to my publisher. My publisher works on it for a while. It can be three or four months. And then it comes back from a copy editor. Well, in the meantime, I've got that three months to be working on my next project. So I sort of figured out how these things fit together. And so I kind of overlap. They dovetail. And one last thing is the hardest book to write by far is the first book. Because you don't know if you can do it. You don't know exactly what's involved. After you've been doing it for a while, you know how to put these things together. So... You know, it's, it's, and it's what I do. I like to write. There are, there are a lot of people who call themselves writers who like the idea of <laughs> having written a book. Mm-hmm. But in many cases, they describe the writing process as painful. And I tell you, when I run across people like that, I sort of scratch my heads. In fact, if, if they're only starting into the business, then I make so bold as to say, why don't you do something else? <laughs> because, because if you like it, writing is great. I consider it to be like a craft. It's, it's my hobby as much as it is my vocation. And every day I'm looking for a reason to write. I'm not looking for excuses not to write, which is an occupational hazard. <laughs> and one last thing, one last thing, that I deal in nonfiction. I don't have to make this stuff up. It's out there for me to find and then to formulate, to conceive, to organize and put forward. I have friends who are novelists. 
and screenwriters. They got to make this stuff up. Right. I, I cannot conceive how a writer of nonfiction can encounter writer's block. Because if you don't know what to write, go, it's out there, go find it. And then if you have to make this stuff up, that's a different matter. Right. Thank you so much for that really in-depth explanation uh, about the rhythm. And I, I got to say, I can tell when I read your stuff, it's like, this guy had fun writing it because I'm having fun reading it. So yeah, it, yeah. it comes through. And when I stop having fun, I'm going to stop writing. There you go. There you go. Great mantra. Um, okay, so let's let's hone in. Let's start to zoom in yeah. on the topic of the hour, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, you make the argument. It's right there in your title that he's a traitor to his class. So let's start by discussing his class. Where in the American pecking order was Franklin Roosevelt born into? Well, first, I have to ask you, because I polled the audiences that I speak to on this subject. Yeah. If you saw that there was a book with a title, Traitor to His Class, and you knew it was about Franklin Roosevelt, would you think that the book is going to be favorable toward Roosevelt or unfavorable toward Roosevelt? You know, I would uh, not make an assumption either way. It kind of depends on if I uh, consider that a good or a bad thing. If I'm okay. someone who says, okay, if you're mean to the upper class, then I'm going to be like, this is an unfavorable book about Roosevelt. But that's kind of the point here. I do cool. want to leave my readers, my potential readers, sort of wondering mm-hmm. what's going on here. Because traitor is a very negative label. Right. And, you know, in, in any society, there's nothing worse than a traitor. Right. But on the other hand, if you're t- that's if you're talking about traitor to your country or traitor to your class, well, maybe maybe you should be a traitor to your class if your class is doing something wrong. I should point out that I didn't invent that title. That was a label that was stuck on Roosevelt during his time in office. And so he was described as a traitor to his class. And you ask, so what class was he from? Well, he was from wealthy folks. His great-great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather was Dutch, and the family had made a pretty good fortune over time. So Franklin Roosevelt was in the position of knowing in, when he was a teenager, when he was in college, he never would have to work for a living if he didn't want to, which For some people, that is an opportunity. It means you can choose what you want to do rather than being constrained by what you need to do to make money. On the other hand, uh, for some people, it can lead to never being able to decide anything. Right. In Franklin Roosevelt's case, though, as I say, he he was the second son of his father, James Roosevelt. There was an, an older, a much older child, brother, And he was the only child of his mother. So his mother, Sarah Delano Roosevelt, was Franklin Roosevelt's uh, mother and his father's second wife. His previous wife had died. So this meant that Roosevelt was uh, really sort of, uh, well, he was favored by the wealth of his father and favored and perhaps uh, limited, constrained by the attention, by the excessive attention of his mother. She was sort of in his life, in his face from the time he was young. Now he was, Roosevelt, Roosevelt, I uh, felt a a filial attachment to his mother and uh, he felt that he owed his mother and his father something. But, and I should add that 
it's hard to know how personalities are developed. And I'm a biographer as well as a historian. And, you know, this is, we deal in personalities. And I've never come up with any sort of easy way of telling, well, why this person is this kind of personality, this person is another, another kind of personality. But I would say that Roosevelt had many of the characteristics of the only child. Now, he wasn't. He was the only child of his mother who was the parent that most mattered. And so he wasn't overtly rebellious. He didn't have to rebel against anything. But on the other hand, he had enough of a mind of his own that he would chart his own path, except that he would do it in a way that didn't necessarily, didn't excessively offend his mother. And this is, this is going to shape his life. But for example, he did not go to school. He, he had tutors. He traveled back and forth across the Atlantic. By the time he was 15 years old, he'd been to Europe eight times. Wow. And he developed that kind of sort of mid-Atlantic, transatlantic accent that you hear with you know, actors like Lauren Bacall, people like this. And uh, where did it come from? Because it certainly doesn't sound like New York, at least not the New York of ordinary New Yorkers. Yeah. But it's just a little bit of an English angle to it. And so, yeah, it, it, is, it was the way the wealthy taught their kids to speak. And when I say the wealthy taught their kids to speak, typically it was the, the governesses and the tutors taught their kids to speak. So Roosevelt, Roosevelt was born into this world, into this class where, oh, the sports he played were golf, uh, yachting, things like this. He moved in the, the best, best, that is, uh, what shall I say, the most full of themselves social circles of New York and Boston. And... You know, the world was his sort of almost for the asking. Well, I say that because that aristocratic privilege has never gotten you as much in America as it did in England. And so we don't have titled nobility. Right. And just because you're born rich doesn't mean that other people are going to take you seriously. And so Roosevelt did have an example of what to do with himself from his fifth cousin once removed, Theodore Roosevelt. Now, it's Roosevelt is one of those rare examples of somebody who becomes president who had a role model within the family. And you, can, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you can count them easily on you know one hand. And so John Quincy Adams could see what being president was like by observing his father, John Adams. I don't know how much Benjamin Harrison hung out with his grandfather, William Henry Harrison. There wasn't much time to hang yeah, out. Yeah, one month. And father was only president for a month. Yeah. And then, of course, George W. Bush, son of George H.W. Bush, that's later on. But with, with Franklin Roosevelt, his cousin, cousin Theodore, as he was called in the family, um, cousin Theodore was president at a crucial time for Franklin Roosevelt in that he was president when Roosevelt was in college. And so Roosevelt got to hang out at the White House and see what, see what it was like to be president. And, and he could measure himself against Theodore Roosevelt. When, when students uh, come to my office and ask, so you know, how am I gonna figure out what to do with my life? One of the things I do is say, you know, try, to, try to find somebody who does that thing you think you might wanna do and measure yourself against that person. You know, are you like this person this way? Do you have the kind of skill set this person has? Theodore Roosevelt could do that with, I'm sorry, Franklin Roosevelt could do that with Theodore Roosevelt. And he concluded by the time he was out of college, I could be president of the United States 
if cousin Theodore can do it, I can do it. So I'm curious, as he was growing up, you know, but before he even gets to the realization that, oh, my God, my fifth cousin is president, you know, does he have an idea of how privileged he is growing up uh, and and how different was it? I feel like most people, no matter how rich or how poor, they tend to think like my life is probably pretty close to average, you know. That's exa- oh, that's exactly it. So people tend to normalize their own experience. Right. And so Roosevelt, well, Roosevelt's family fortune gave him a comfortable life. But just down the road from the Hyde Park house of the Roosevelt's was the, the house of the Vanderbilt's. Now, that was serious money. And so the Roosevelt's, they were just sort of middling in that particular set. So it's not as though Roosevelt had all the money he ever wanted. Not at all. Um, in fact, so his, his mother, after his father died, his mother sort of kept him on an allowance, which gave her something of a say in how he organized his life. And he could have said, okay, mom, I don't need the family money. I'm going to go out on my own. But he didn't. And, and partly because he chose the path that cousin Theodore had chosen, and that is politics. And in fact, Franklin Roosevelt modeled his political career, his political ascent, very much on Theodore Roosevelt's yeah, yeah. political ascent. And so Franklin, in fact, he, he mapped out for some of his friends when he was in his early 20s. Here's how I'm going to become president of the United States. I'm going to start off by getting elected to the New York State Legislature. And his friend would say, well, why the New York State Legislature? Because that's what cousin Theodore did. And then, and then I'm going to work for the national ticket in presidential campaigns. And in exchange for this, when the ticket wins, I'm going to be offered a job in Washington. And the job I'm going to ask for is Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Why Assistant Secretary of the Navy, says the friend? Because that's what Cousin Theodore did. And then, and then I'm going to come back to New York and I'm going to become governor of New York. Let me guess, because that's what Cousin Theodore did. And then I'm going to get on the national ticket and then I'm going to be president of the United States. Easy as that. My fifth cousin did it. How hard can it be? That's right. And it really does make all the difference in the world because there are, well, until this time, until recently, young boys in America who I lead you, boy, you know, I could be president one day. Now, for most of them, that's just this distant thing and, and nobody takes it very seriously. But if you get close enough to see what being president actually involves and what kind of talents, what kind of temperament it has, the, uh, Franklin Roosevelt could very easily look at Theodore Roosevelt and, and say, I think quite credibly, certainly in his own mind, if he can do it, I can do it. And in fact, he did follow that path and he did become president. Aside from following the path and the obvious benefit of having the last name Roosevelt, are there any other ways that Theodore, having the president you know, as your um, a relative, helped him execute that path? and helped him execute his rise in politics. Okay, so this is where this is where the personal story of Franklin Roosevelt and the public story of who Franklin Roosevelt is going to come come to be intersect. So Theodore Roosevelt was cousin Theodore for all the while that Franklin Roosevelt was growing up. 
Now, in the Roosevelt family, there are lots of cousins, especially when you get to the fifth cousin rank. You know, there are dozens and dozens. Doesn't make you special to be the cousin of Theodore Roosevelt. But then Franklin Roosevelt marries Eleanor Roosevelt, who, by the way, was Eleanor Roosevelt before she married Franklin Roosevelt. (laughs) Eleanor Roosevelt was the niece of Theodore Roosevelt. So at that point, Eleanor Roosevelt became Eleanor Roosevelt Roosevelt. (laughs) And Theodore Roosevelt went from being cousin Theodore to uncle Theodore. And there's a a generational difference in age, so it works fine that way. Um, but, But it meant that Franklin Roosevelt had really moved more to the inner circle of Theodore Roosevelt than he had been before. Now, that by itself wasn't a huge advantage. There was the name recognition, but there was a problem. And the problem was that the two, Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt, were born in two different political parties. Yes, yeah. And so, and and in fact, they were, well, Theodore Roosevelt was a, um, kind of a misfit within the Republican Party. He was a legacy Republican. He was, his father was a staunch unionist during the Civil War and therefore a fan of Abraham Lincoln at a time when New York City, even during the Civil War and after, was strongly democratic. This is the New York City of Tammany Hall. And there was a a strong undercurrent of corruption involved as well. And so Theodore Roosevelt could never bring himself to be a Democrat, even though his political views tended more in the direction of the reform wing of the Democratic Party. But he was a Republican. He was a Republican because he was a fan of Abraham Lincoln. He was a foe of the rebellion and the South and all that stuff. So Theodore Roosevelt is a Republican. Franklin Roosevelt, having really grown up, not in New York City, no, no, but in the Hudson Valley, he was a Democrat. And he was, his father was a Democrat. And he didn't carry the the baggage of, he came along 25 years later than Theodore Roosevelt. So he did, there wasn't the baggage of the Civil War and Reconstruction and all of this. And Franklin Roosevelt, in any event, wasn't quite so historically attuned as Theodore. So anyway, he's, they're in different parties. And partly for that reason, they never could get that close. Now, the fact that they were of a different generation, there was that. Then there was another thing as well. So Franklin Roosevelt, excuse me, Theodore Roosevelt had a son, Theodore Jr. He actually had four sons, but... Theodore Jr., for obvious reasons, thought of himself as his father's namesake, he was, and heir. And Theodore Jr. eventually decided he wanted to go into politics. But by the time he he got into politics, he was a a bit younger than Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt had already sort of co-opted the family name and proclaimed himself the heir of Theodore Roosevelt. And there had already been some friction between the two, these two branches of the, the Roosevelt family. The Theodore side was called the Oyster Bay Roosevelts, and the, the Franklin Roosevelt side was the, the Hyde Park Roosevelts. And this made it even worse. And so there was this, there was a tension. So I, I suppose it's probably a convenient thing. It probably was a convenient thing for Franklin Roosevelt. But Theodore Roosevelt died in, in 1919, kind of opening the way. If if Theodore Roosevelt still would have been around when Franklin Roosevelt was clearly making a play in national politics, it would have been more uncomfortable. Mm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so so FDR, he's privileged in wealth, he's privileged in family relations, and in uh, 1932, 
he became president. So without going into the blow by blow of the New Deal, what did Roosevelt do that earned him your moniker and earned him the moniker that, as you say, people hoisted on him, traitor to his class? Franklin Roosevelt was born in an era when the predominant mode of thinking of Americans regarding what government should do for them was summarized as laissez-faire. Americans did not expect government to do much for them. In fact, Grover Cleveland, a Democrat during the 1880s, vetoed a bill that was going to provide basically financial relief to Texas farmers. And he said, I don't want to do this. He said, I have always thought that in America, the people should support the government. The government should not support the people. And this was a fairly common position to take, especially especially if you were of the wealthy class. You didn't need government's help, and all government to you was somebody that was going to tax you. And so that wasn't something that you looked forward to. Now, things changed during starting about the 1890s through the progressive era or the early 20th century, where more and more people realized that there was a role for government and that there were times when people needed the help of government. Now, there's a a moment, there's an episode in Franklin Roosevelt's life where this really becomes explicit in a way it hadn't been before. Theodore Roosevelt cruised through I'm sorry, Franklin Roosevelt cruised <laughs> through his boyhood, his teenage years. There were no particular trials. There was no angst. The life was handed to him on a silver platter. He was talented. He was well-spoken. He was charming. He was handsome. He seemed to have a kind of personality that, that conduced to success in politics. If, if there was any complaint against Franklin Roosevelt, it was that things came too easily to him. And then, and then there was the great personal trial of his life in 1921. After having been the vice presidential nominee of his party in 1920, he was stricken with polio. Now, as an adult at the age of 39, polio was very common in those days when it was called infantile paralysis. And most people were exposed to the polio virus when they were young. And some, some kids had no symptoms at all. Some had fairly mild symptoms. Most got over it. If you were not exposed when you were young, however, if your first exposure was as an adult, then the disease could be devastating, And it, as it was for Franklin Roosevelt. He went to bed one evening in the summer of 1921, feeling kind of tired and his arms were heavy, and he woke up the next morning. He could not move anything below his neck. Now, he gradually regained the use of his arms and shoulders, but he never really did regain the use of his legs. And, and so Franklin Roosevelt came to understand in a very personal way that bad things can happen to people through no fault of their own. And this was critical to Roosevelt's sympathies for Americans during the Great Depression. He ran in 1932 against Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover was an orphan. He made his way in the world. He became a millionaire by his own efforts. He was one for whom the individualistic ethos had worked really well. And it was very tempting for Herbert Hoover and other self-made individuals like this to think that if people aren't successful, there's, eh, there's something wrong with them, or at the very least, that nothing is going to be gained by helping them out. In fact, their individualistic temperament will be diminished by that. 
Franklin Roosevelt, on the other hand, understood, no, 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 bad things can happen to people. And in fact, that was the essence of the Depression for most Americans, people who had saved their whole lives, saved up so they wouldn't be destitute in their old age and had resisted the temptation to play the stock market during the 1920s when stock prices were going up and people seemed to be making millions. No, 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 that's too risky because they knew that share prices could go down as well as up. No, the, the thrifty, the safe mode was to just put your money in a bank and just save it for that rainy day. But then come the Great Depression, the banks collapsed. And, and so millions of people lost their life savings. Millions of people lost their jobs. Millions of people lost their homes. It wasn't their fault. It was the fault of, well, collective decisions of lots of people. They really could use some help. And Franklin Roosevelt, at this point, this is where he diverged from most of the people in his class. Most of the people in his class said, no, no, everybody's got to tighten their belt. Government's got to tighten its belt. That if we, if we give aid to people, if we give away money, then they simply will learn to expect this money and they won't be those strong individuals we want them to be. We have to ride out this tough time as we've ridden out tough times in the past. And this is where Roosevelt really parted from those who began to call him a traitor to his class. And what was he doing that like earned that? Like, is it, is it the New Deal policies? Is it the way he talked? Is it the way he carried it? Like, what was he doing that really got them to start throwing that label at him? At a substantive level, it was the policies of the New Deal that provided aid to individuals, that provided relief payments. So people who were unemployed, okay, they could get money from the government, that provided government jobs to people, that provided government support to farmers who, farmers under the programs of the New Deal, they got paid not to produce crops. It seemed paradoxical, even to many of the farmers themselves, but it was necessary to reduce the overproduction that had caused prices to plummet. The essence of it was Franklin Roosevelt took the position that in hard times, government should come to the aid of Americans in suffering and that Americans had a right to expect government to do that. Now that made it different from previous forms of support for the poor, which were typically private charities. Now a charity is not something that anybody can claim a right to. And the revolutionary aspect of the New Deal was that Roosevelt was saying, you Americans, we Americans, you have a right to this. We are a wealthy country and in a democracy, we're all in this together. And so changing this mindset to wait, you know, it was one thing for rich folks back in the 1870s to, to give money to support the poor. Then it was entirely within their control. What they didn't like about the New Deal was that these programs of relief for the poor, it wasn't in their control anymore. They weren't calling the shots because they were being taxed to do this. And they realized that, oh, wait a minute, in a democracy, wealth doesn't call the shots. Mm. The votes of the people call the shots. And that was the part, that was the part that really got many of them. And, and there was a sense on the part of some of them that they really had been betrayed. They would have expected mm. something mm. like this from, say, William Jennings mm. Bryan, right. you know, an ordinary person, but right. one of their own. You know, yeah. he had gone to Harvard. He had, you know, he played golf at their golf clubs. He went yachting with their kids. 
He's, why is he doing this? And, and he did it in a way that made clear that he felt a greater affinity for the great unwashed classes in America than for the members of his own country club. And, and so I'm curious, you make the point that he really developed this empathy uh, from polio, and that was instrumental in the response he had in the 30s. If you look back to, like, say, 1910, Roosevelt, when he was running for his first congressional seat, was he progressive yet, or, or does this really totally transform the guy? Oh, he, no, he was progressive. So among the Democrats, he was on the progressive end of the, the Democratic scale. And I can't say that without the polio, he wouldn't have developed this kind of empathy. Um, it's, it's quite possible it was there and the polio triggered it. I'll add another aspect to this. And as much as polio increased Franklin Roosevelt's ability to empathize, the fact that he had polio allowed voters oh, yeah. to identify with him in a way they had not before. He was this before the polio. He was basically this rich playboy. Right. So, yeah. but, but after this, they saw, okay, this man had suffered. Now, it's interesting how Roosevelt and his family and those around him dealt with the issue of his illness. At first, when he first came down with polio, Roosevelt and his wife, Eleanor, and the folks around them said, okay, we got to hush this up. We can't let word get out because this is probably a death sentence to his political career. Nobody knew anybody who was what we would call disabled, what they called crippled, who succeeded in public life. They didn't know crippled lawyers. They didn't know disabled judges. They certainly didn't know any presidents in the United States who could not stand on their own two feet. And so at first they tried to hush it up, but it became clear that they couldn't. Roosevelt was in the, the public view already. And when it became known he had this disease, then th hundreds, thousands of people wrote letters of sympathy to him. Now, if he had not come down this, this nobody would have sent a sympathy card to Franklin Roosevelt. He didn't need right. sympathy. Right. But now he did. And so people could realize that this guy knows suffering the way we do. He's one of us, even though he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And Roosevelt was, was really, first of all, Roosevelt sincerely felt that. He spent a lot of time in Warm Springs, Georgia, trying to rehabilitate. And he, would, he got to know the people. This is a poor part of Georgia. These are poor farmers in Georgia. And he got to know what their lives were like. He knew what, the, what a dozen eggs cost and how much a gallon of milk sold for and how much they had to pay for a plow and this sort of thing. And he was exposed to their lives in a way he never would have been. And he was, he was somebody who was educatable. Mm -hmm. You could see that, mm -hmm. hey, this is their lives. This is what they need. And I'll, I'll add that Franklin Roosevelt was ambitious. He wanted to be president of the United States. He wanted to matter. And this doesn't, this isn't exclusive and this doesn't contradict the empathy that he felt, but he did understand that if I'm going to be a good president, you know, I need to understand what the lives of, of people are like. It was also that the timing actually for Franklin Roosevelt was really handy. If Roosevelt had not come down with polio, he quite possibly would have received the Democratic nomination for president in 1924 or maybe 1928, yeah. and he would have lost yeah, because yeah. those were Republican years. The Republican Party was doing well. The country was doing well under the Republicans. And he, so he would, have, 
He lost as the vice presidential nominee in 1920, but nobody blames the VP candidate for losing. So he came out of that untarnished. If not for having to retire from politics for a while, he might very well have gotten the Democratic nomination in the 20s and lost and been considered sort of damaged political goods on that account. No. So he stayed out of the 1924 round. In 1928, he was talked into running for governor of New York. Now, that turned out to be a really good opportunity because, of course, the Depression began in New York, the Wall Street's in New York, and so he had to deal with this. But he could do it in the context of one state, albeit the most populous state in the Union at that time. But still, he could try out his ideas on how to deal with the Depression in New York. And you could, various people, Louis Brandeis and others have talked talked about the states as the laboratories of democracy. And Roosevelt's approach to dealing with depression was very experimental. We're going to try this. And if it works, we'll proceed. If it doesn't, we'll try something else. He understood various explanations and theories about it, but he was not wedded to any of them. It was a matter of what do we need to do? What works? We'll try it. And we'll try something else if that doesn't work. So with that set of combinations and background, Roosevelt, in some ways, was ideally placed to be president in the bottom of the Depression when he was inaugurated in 1933. So you also call his presidency, which we're about to hit. You know, he's he's, there. He's inaugurated. You call his presidency radical. And the word radical can sound very scary to some. So I'm wondering if you might mind elaborating on what you mean by radical and what made Roosevelt's presidency a radical. Yes, yeah, so here I use radical in the sense of really going to the root of what politics is all about, what government is for. And again, the, the prevailing ethos before Roosevelt and before the New Deal was that people should look to themselves and to the private sector for solutions to major social problems. The progressives of the first decade and a half of the 20th century put something of a dent in that. But still, the old ideas that we look to ourselves, there's a cycle to the business world. Sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. But when it goes down, we just tighten our belts, we ride it out, and we carry on. Roosevelt came in and he really overturned that expectation that Government is not subservient to the private sector, or as he might have put it, capitalism is not subservient to democracy. I'm sorry, democracy is not subservient to capitalism. If anything, it should be the other way around. And in fact, capitalism, the capitalists, the folks who were in favor of the laissez-faire private market and all this, until this point, had largely said government ought to stay out of our way. But capitalism, American capitalism, was on life support when Roosevelt became president. Roosevelt bailed out the banking industry. Roosevelt could have almost with the snap of his fingers nationalized the banking industry. There was enough support for that and say, okay, the government's simply going to run the banks. He didn't. Now, Roosevelt was in that strange position of saving capitalism from itself, mm. but getting no gratitude from the capitalists. <laughs> yes. so, A lot of American capitalists, starting with American bankers, would have been destitute had not Roosevelt taken the steps that he did. But were any of them in a position to say, thank you, Mr. President, thank you, Mr. Roosevelt? Not at all. And he knew, he knew that he wasn't going to get any gratitude from them. And indeed, when he ran for re-election in 1936, there were 
people who are criticizing me as a radical, as a communist, mm. as someone who was undermining the very basis of American politics. And he demonized them. He, in fact, he said, I welcome their opposition. He called them economic royalists. Mm. And, you know, ever since the American Revolution, to be called a royalist in American politics is not a good thing. But Roosevelt took them on because Roosevelt understood in a way that every successful president understands the path to success in politics, in democratic politics, is not to unite the people. It's to divide the people. Just make sure that you've got the bigger portion of the people after then divided. If you insist on uniting the people, well, that sometimes happens during wartime when you have a common foreign enemy. But on domestic affairs, there's always this division. And Roosevelt, especially once the conservatives started calling him this socialist and this traitor to his class, he loved that because then he could say, no, I'm the defender of the ordinary people of America against these economic royalists. And their very criticism basically played into his strategy and made him all the more popular among the ordinary folks of America, which is actually very interesting because the main goal of the New Deal to, was to alleviate the depression, to put the economy back on track and get things going toward prosperity once again. It failed in that regard. At the end of the 1930s, after six years of seven years of Roosevelt's presidency, the economy was still as dicey almost as it had been in 1933. But what had changed was a feeling on the part of ordinary Americans that government cared about them, that government was trying to help them. And that made all the difference in the world. Roosevelt revived hope. He didn't revive the economy, but he revived hope. And the measure of his success in doing this was the overwhelming re-election victory he won in 1936. And I'd love to dive deeper into that reaction, the national reaction to FDR's progressive programs. When he's passing these work programs, Social Security, unemployment insurance, are these as simple and straightforward as the masses loved them, the wealthy hated them, or was there anything more nuanced than that going on? Well, it's much more nuanced than that. There are very many people, even among the unemployed, who are quite resistant to the idea that they were going to take a government handout, mm. which is one of the reasons that Roosevelt emphasized government jobs rather than simply government handouts. There was, there was relief payments where people simply got paid, but there were also government jobs. And Roosevelt understood that it was much more important for somebody to get a job than simply to get a check. This is why Roosevelt put such emphasis on one of his institutions called the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, that aimed at young men just entering the labor market. And these were young men who didn't have any prospects of jobs in the private sector because those jobs had dried up and so young people weren't being hired. And he understood that if these young guys spend four, five, six, eight years when they should be working, not working, they're going to develop all sorts of bad habits. And so let's get them to work. And he realized that for many of them, discipline would be necessary. So the CCC was modeled on the military and they wore military-like uniforms and they lived in military-like barracks and half of their money, half their paychecks went home and they could keep the other part. And so it was, it was crucial to Roosevelt's understanding that we have to get the economy moving again, but until it does, we have to make sure we don't lose a generation of people who lose faith in 
the American economy and America itself. What is the legacy of the Roosevelt administration? You know, how was the presidency, the progressive movement, the conservative movement? How are these things changed by what he accomplished and, and just his longevity in the office? So I'm glad you asked the question, Kenny, because uh, as we speak, my students, I'm teaching at the University of Texas in an intro course in American history where we're on the New Deal. Hey. And I'm having the students imagine a debate between Alf Landon, who was the Republican candidate for president in 1936, and Franklin Roosevelt, who was the Democratic incumbent candidate in 1936. And the, the, their debate is focusing on Social Security. When Roosevelt became president, Social Security did not exist. The idea that government should ensure that old people not die in poverty, the government should guarantee an old age pension by taxing people through the work years. This was a novel. It was a radical idea. It was something that Alf Landon stoutly opposed, that the Republicans stoutly opposed. It was something that it was unclear if a majority of Americans really liked it much. It was a radical change in the attitude of Americans regarding their relationship with government. So that was in 1935. Now, my students and you perhaps watched President Biden's State of the Union address just uh, a few weeks ago. And, and Biden, I think, to get a rise out of the Republicans, said that the Republicans were trying to cut away at Social Security. And they rose up and they said, no, we're not. No, we're not. That is proof of the legacy of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. That in 1936, Republicans said, stood up and said, yes, we are against Social Security. Right. But in 2023, they're saying, no, we're not. Even among conservatives, they realize that this is part of the landscape of American politics. And people have come to expect this. Now, this is, of course, the, the enduring concern of conservatives, that once you start these government programs, they never stop. And so, and, you know, and, and maybe the spending gets too great over time. So, but from Roosevelt and Social Security, there's a straight line to Lyndon Johnson, who considered himself the heir of Franklin Roosevelt, to Medicare in 1965, another untouchable program in American politics. So from the conservative perspective, they keep losing these arguments. They keep losing the arguments because the programs are so popular, which puts the conservatives in a really difficult position. They're opposing these things that are really popular. But from the extreme conservative viewpoint on this, yeah, well, you know, addictive drugs are popular too, but that doesn't make them good for you. Right. But, but we, we still live in the world that Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal created. What lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from uh, FDR? Well, so I wrote a book about Franklin Roosevelt, and I sort of got to look under the hood of the Roosevelt administration. And if there's a single lesson I take away from this, it's one that makes a lot of people, including me, sometimes uncomfortable. And that is that I've concluded, and I think Franklin Roosevelt concluded too, that there is a different moral standard for individuals as individuals and leaders of great countries. And the extreme version of this is that if you want to be a pacifist, that's fine on your own time, if you're the only person you're responsible for. But no pacifist should ever become president of the United States because there are bad actors in the world. And if they know the president of the United States will not lift a finger to defend the American people, then the American people will be preyed upon. But in Roosevelt's case, Roosevelt, he, he was willing to do things and say things that weren't true, 
to, uh, we haven't spoken about foreign policy, but Roosevelt concluded quite early on that the United States was going to have to go to war against Nazi Germany. But he understood that that was a very unpopular position to take. And so he prevaricated on this issue. He would say, no, 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 I have no intention to send American boys to, to fight in Europe. You know, we're going to do everything we can to stay out of this war. But, you know, eventually Roosevelt, uh, he sort of got what he expected, and that was American participation in the war. Now, you know, one could fault him. Oh, and I, I should say that when Roosevelt, Roosevelt, uh, Lewis Howe, Louis Howe was a person, an individual who was instrumental in making Franklin Roosevelt president. Louis Howe made Roosevelt his personal project when Roosevelt was in the early days of polio. He kept putting, pushing Roosevelt forward and all this other stuff. And he was great for Roosevelt to help make Roosevelt president. But once Roosevelt became president, Louis Howe thought, okay, well, you know, I'm going to get a good job. I helped make this guy president. But Roosevelt realized that Louis Howe was useful in making Roosevelt president, but was not going to be useful in helping Roosevelt be president. So Louis Howe really felt as though Roosevelt had tossed him aside. And essentially, that's what happened. But Roosevelt understood that loyalty in personal relationships is probably a very good thing. But loyalty mm. on the dime of the American people, yeah. when their interests of you know, 100 million people at stake, personal loyalty, no, that's not the primary quality. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this interview with H.W. Brands, please pick up Traitor to His Class, The Privileged Life and Radical Presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or subscribe to H.W. Substack, A User's Guide to History. Uh, thank you so much for your time, H.W., and I hope you continue to enjoy writing for a long, long time. Ah, thanks, Kenny. It was good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, bug them to listen until they no longer know nothing about the Know Nothing Party, and then write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APH Podcast and on Substack, Abridged Presidential Newsletter. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentalhistories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you everyone who has contributed so far. The music of today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, I will host a fireside chat with presidential historian and friend of the show, Harold Holzer, about FDR's mastery of radio, the press, and persuasion. That's coming up next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>